election seasons we've seen in modern history, and I think that's in part because we, not referring to UBC, but sort of as American citizens, uh, we've, we've chosen two of the most unlikable candidates ever to run for office. Um, I think sadly that's a fact. That's what a lot of people have noted. So one's comments and his actions about berating and betting and belittling and horrid, not to mention the way he's spoken about minorities. And on the other side, you've got a candidate who can't seem to be trusted with money or with power or with classified information or with emails or with her word or with nearly anything. And that's, those are our options. Uh, and that's been like, frustrating, uh, understandably, for many folks. Saturday Night Live, they do parodies all the time. I don't tend to stay up and watch it, but frankly, I'm usually trying to at that point. Um, but, uh, but they actually gave up last night. Like, it's been so depressing for them, they just stopped last night, and they just went out in the street and started hugging people or something. Um, you do have the, the sort of sure at times of the candidates before us, but I think it's more than that. I think part of the frustration that, that many feel and that, that news outlets and Christians have been tapping into is that, and I think this is particularly for, true for older generations, they feel a lot like our nation is just devolving before our very eyes. It's like we're witnessing judges where everyone just does what is right in their own eyes. And so many of the things and the values once cherished have just gone by the wayside. You know, TV programs seem to do more now to undermine the family than they do to promote it. Uh, divorce and abortion have gone from illegal in times past to inalienable rights. You have, frankly, it's more morally acceptable for a man to marry a man or for a man to use a women's restroom than for a man to pray in a public school. And I think you just take those realities and f- folks are throwing up their hands like, what's happening? This is it. We've got to do something. We've got to stop this. So how do we think about these things? Some pastors don't say anything. And in my mind, there's nothing when it comes to speaking about politics, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Pastors are called to pray for their people, shepherd them through the word, apply it to their lives. If they don't get into issues of politics to any great detail, um, I don't think they're being disobedient to the Bible. Others have done the opposite, and they've said um, either who they're voting for, um, or they've done that and said who they think you should vote for. And that may be fine. It may be okay. Um, But given the stakes involved, it's rarely said, this is my vote, take it for what it's worth. You know, we're operating in the realm of Christian freedom. Um, It's not often presented like that. It's more presented like I heard a a very respected preacher say this afternoon. And when he was reflecting upon prominent evangelicals who are voting for a third-party candidate, he said with frustration and with only sort of thinly veiled moral indignation, I guess I was raised different from those evangelical leaders. I was taught not to lie down when the heat comes. Then he proceeded to say he was going to vote for the Republican Party candidate, and effectively he called any Christian who didn't do the same a coward. That's exactly what he was doing with that kind of language. Um, I don't know what he would have said for someone who wasn't voting third-party candidate but voting for Hillary. Like, I have no idea. Um, But in my mind, that kind of language is not as helpful. Um, And yet, it is very common. And I think because of the perceived stakes, whether or not you're talking Supreme Court, Religious Liberty, Affordable Care Act, people who share Christ in common legitimately, legitimately believe the same gospel, are being made to feel somehow reprobate because they don't see eye to eye with another on a particular candidate or a particular platform or because they're not voting at all. 
And so to be clear, my goal tonight is not to tell you, hey, this is who you should vote for. That's not what I'm giving this talk. I'm not endorsing a particular candidate. I'm not even seeking to engage in the kind of wink, wink, nod, nod, like this is really who you should be voting for, offering sort of a platform um, to consider. So I may leave some of your most burning questions unanswered. I may raise some new questions you want answered. The great thing is we're a church, we're a family, we're friends. There'll be some Q&A at the end. We get to keep chatting about this as time passes, not just tonight, but on into the future. Um, And I'd encourage you all to keep having those conversations. But I want to start just by referencing a few texts in the New Testament by starting there with building some foundations, learning from them, and then seeking to apply that to how we think about our vote. So if you've got a Bible, open with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. So this is Jesus. It's the final week. He's had a number of confrontations with the religious leaders. And as we get to Mark 12... The most unusual set, uh, you'd say unusual bedfellows, have come together to try to trap him. Pharisees, right, supporters of, um, of Jews there in Jerusalem, and Herodians, who were supporters of Rome, really King Herod's puppet government on behalf of Rome. Groups that did not like one another, like Jesus even less. And so they come together, and they come together to trap him. And they sent, so they sent him, sent to him, rather, to Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and you don't care about anyone's opinion. Oh, how unlike Saul that we've been thinking about, right? Doesn't care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. All right, so Jesus is presented here with a kind of heads I win, tails you lose situation. So that's what he's, he's being put in sort of a trap, a kind of rhetorical checkmate with the question. And it's not a question of, hey, do you like taxes or not? That's not the question being put to Jesus. This is about the, the Roman imperial tax. This is the tax where Caesar claimed to be God and used that imperial tax to forcibly enslave and at times kill Jewish citizens. Now, it would become the subject of two great revolts, um, both before Jesus' time here and also later in around 66 AD. It shouldn't come as any surprise that conflicts over taxes often create revolutions. All right, it was the same with the days of Jesus and the Jews. And so to reject the tax, to say, no, you don't have to pay it, well, that would, of course, incur the ire of the Herodians because they reflect sort of the Roman government, and that would be an offense against Caesar, and they'd want Jesus' head on a platter. But, of course, to say you do have to pay it would draw the ire of all the Pharisees and the Jewish people who recognize this tax as being used to forcibly oppress and to subjugate them, and they'd want his head. 
But notice Jesus is undeterred. I mean, if we gave this question to some legal group, some law, you know, law school at U of A, they'd deliberate for a semester and come back with some long piece that would get us nowhere. Jesus, in a sentence and a half or so, gets right to the point. And when a bat of an eye, he takes his accusers to school and he gives a wonderful biblical theology of government. So what are some of the things we learn? Um, I think one of the things we see from this text first, as God's people, we're citizens of two kingdoms simultaneously. So we're citizens of two kingdoms simultaneously. There's the kingdom of God, and there's a particular kingdom that we live in in this world. So Augustine called this the city of God and the city of man. You can call him Augustine. It really just depends on where you live. Okay, Augustine, Augustine, same thing. Um, in our case, the kingdom of this world, right, that we're interested in is America. And as Jesus points out, both kingdoms, they have their own laws and they have their own authorities. Okay, it's just a second thing to note. The state doesn't have to be Christian to be legitimate. Okay, Jesus is teaching here. The state doesn't have to be Christian to be legitimate. Caesar was as godless as they come. So we may lament some of the candidates before us. We would take either of them in a heartbeat over most of the Caesars that ruled Rome. Uh, Jesus recognizes, nonetheless, Caesar's legitimacy as a ruler and his legitimate claim to authority over his subjects. Third thing, God's people have obligations to the state as well as obligations to God. God's people have obligations to the state as well as to God. So Jesus couldn't be clear on this, right? We're to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And in this case, that means taxes. And the Bible says nothing explicitly about tax policy, right? How much we should tax, who we should tax. Do you tax income? Do you tax consumption? Whatever. The Bible doesn't get into all those particulars. What it's saying as an obligation that we have to the state is we need to pay our taxes. Fourth, we have to delineate the rights, laws, and obligations of the two kingdoms and their citizens from each other. I know that's kind of wordy, but you'll get the basic point. We just got to delineate the rights, laws, and obligations of the two kingdoms and their citizens. We have to delineate them from each other. So Jesus makes a distinction between what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God. What Caesar can tax and what he can't. So Caesar's authority is ultimately authority in this world, right? In the kingdom that he rules. And so there are limitations to his authority. And yet at the same time, he's telling his, well, he's really telling the the audience here that we're not at liberty to use the obligations to one of those authorities to get out of the obligation that we have to the other. So he's saying to the Pharisees and the Jews, yet you legitimately have to pay taxes to the Roman government. The fact that you're Jews and you believe in the one God and and Caesar believes himself to be a God and be one of many gods, that doesn't excuse you from the responsibility to pay them. And yet at the same time, we have obligation to God. We owe God our entire lives. Um, the worship of our entire lives. And so I can't say that because God is my king and I think Caesar's reign is unjust, that doesn't mean we get out of paying our taxes. 
Right? We owe Caesar obedience in those spheres where he governs. Fifth, though the two kingdoms are legitimate, it doesn't mean they're equal. So they're legitimate. Jesus is recognizing that. It doesn't mean they're equal. So we owe God obedience first. And if you know in Acts, right, when, when Peter and the apostles are commanded to stop preaching the good news and to sharing Jesus, what do they say in Acts 4.19? Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, right, this you must judge. They're saying, listen, at the end of the day, when God's word explicitly commands us to do this and you forbid it, we go with God. That authority is a higher authority. We obey that authority. So there will be times as we follow God where we feel like we must disobey Caesar. So, you know, up until recently, China's one child policy. If I'm a woman in China and I get pregnant with a second child, right? The Bible is very clear on murder. So if I'm a woman in that environment, I'm going to try to obey God and disobey the state, even if that means significant consequences may come to me. It's just never within the state's authority to require me to murder, to require me to expressly disobey such a clear command. Okay. I should say, though, that all that being said, we just have to be careful, though, about claiming religious conscience and liberty so that we don't have to obey Caesar. So Christianity was illegal in Rome. The Jews had an exception. The Jews were permitted to worship in their temples. Christians were not permitted to worship. They were considered like a cult of Judaism. And it was illegal in Rome. It was punishable by death. And yet the legitimacy of a government is not determined, according to Jesus by whether it supports the worship of the one true God or even allows for it. Jesus is saying the legitimacy of a government is not even determined by whether or not it supports the worship of the one true God or even allows for the worship of the one true God. So government has much authority And it may be exercised in ways we find disagreeable, even reprehensible, but that doesn't rise to the level very often. We have to, maybe we'll think about some exceptions, but it doesn't rise to the level very often where we can ignore those commands and excuse our call to submit. So, for example, I loathe the lottery. I loathe abortion. Um, I loathe how the lottery exploits the poor and states benefit on the backs of their poorest people. That's awful. We should hate it. Okay, but if state funds go towards supporting a lottery and promoting it, I'm not going to not pay my taxes. I think i got to pay my taxes. Planned parenthood, right? I can't stand abortion. 60 million or so, you can call it a holocaust, you can want. It's an embarrassment, it's awful, it's heinous. And yet public funds go to support such women's services. Okay, I still pay my taxes. Okay. Those are some reflections on Mark 12. Turn with me, if you would, though, to one other passage I want us to think about for a minute. Romans 13. Romans chapter 13. Verses 1 through 8, let me read that. 
let every person be subject to the governing authorities. If you're unfamiliar with uh, Romans, so you've got your four Gospels in the New Testament, then you've got Acts, um, and then you go right into Romans. That's right after Acts. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Paul's writing to people in Rome. Okay, he's not even writing to folks who enjoy the democracy we live under. He's writing to those who live in Rome. Um, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subject. In subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, and once again, we get back to taxes, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Okay, a few things. Just a few reflections from Romans 13. First, we clearly see the source of all Government, governmental authority is God. Right there. It says it right there in 13.1. It is God. Whether or not that government acknowledges God or not. We already thought about that. Um, Second, there's a clear purpose for government. And we see in Romans 13, a large part of that is justice. It's justice. It's punishment of the wrongdoer. So we see that in many places, Genesis 9, here in Romans 13, 1 Timothy 2. So God gives to society's government to help hold people accountable for crimes against other human beings. He doesn't so much give society's governments so that they can hold people accountable for crimes against God. Right? The Old Testament theocracy would be the only exception to that. But in the large part, that's not why he gave government to folks. Thank you. You knew I needed that. Third, ultimately, government serves the goal of redemption. So its purpose is in part justice, Romans 13. It is also redemption, 1 Timothy 1 to 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. So note the order in 1 Timothy. We're to pray for government so that we might be able to live peaceful, quiet lives so that people can come to know the truth and be saved. That's the progression Paul lays out in 1 Timothy. The gospel flourishes on the common grace field of good government and of orderly society. It's why even in the Bible, anarchy is not preferable to bad governments. So it doesn't flourish when people are just struggling to survive or when there's restless injustice and all sorts of folks are being punished. So we see that development there in government for the good of society. But however good a government may be, we just always have to remember that a kingdom of this world does not bring about the kingdom of God. 
Jesus says that very clearly. My kingdom is not of this world. If Jesus instituted government to bring about his kingdom, he would have armed his disciples. He would have called them to create a nation state. But he didn't do that, right? He created the church to bear witness to his name, to go make disciples, and it didn't have political institutions or parties attached to it. Okay, so what does this mean as we just think about voting? When we vote, we're selecting uh, a candidate who represents a party, and typically that party represents a whole host of positions um, and policies that they understand are for the good of the nation. So if we understand there's a distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, then we begin to understand there's really not such thing as God's party or God's candidate. So friends, last time I looked, Jesus wasn't on the ballot. I wish he was. It would make this election a lot easier for me if he was on the ballot. But in choosing a candidate, we're not simply choosing God's man. We know who that man is. He's just not on the ballot. So instead, we're selecting an agent. We're selecting a person who we think is going to best pursue God's purposes for government. Justice, peace, prosperity, virtue, all those things will inevitably lead, we hope, to the gospel advance. So when we think about the policies of a candidate that they might pursue and champion, we got to recognize there's some things the Bible is going to be really clear about, and we hope in our candidates they're also clear about those things. Um, but in a lot of areas, the Bible just doesn't get real specifics to policy. And so in a lot of areas, we're having to operate in that, in that place of wisdom, taking biblical truths and things the Bible extols and think about, okay, how does that apply in this particular situation? So the law is really clear. God's really clear. Murder is wrong. It's forbidden. We understand abortion to be murder. So we can sort of draw a pretty straight line on that issue from the Bible to policy. That's a pretty easy thing to do. Um, but what about healthcare law? Well, there's not a whole lot in the Bible. Last I looked at least about healthcare law. Should there be a single payer system, right? Should there be some free market system? The Bible just doesn't really get into that a whole lot. Should the resources go to the highest bidder or should they just be distributed amongst people as we have ability Okay, the point is you're not going to be able to draw a straight line from a Bible text to how to answer that question. And Christians will often disagree. So you can talk to Christians in the UK. You know, they may lament that they don't have some of the health care coverage we have here. And at the same time, some of them are really happy that though they don't have a lot of money, they actually get coverage. They actually can be seen and they can afford it. So... Uh, we can get into this pit goes, you may disagree with all that. The point is Christians can differ. That's all I'm trying to say on something like that. Um, so we have to recognize that an overwhelming majority of, of political policies, they fall into that area of wisdom. And since the Bible doesn't endorse candidates or parties, I think it's really incumbent upon us, important, that we proceed in the course of an election with the spirit of love and of charity with our Christian brothers and sisters who may be seeking to apply wisdom and value many of the same things we value and yet come to a different conclusion. I think charity and love are hallmarks of a Christian in that sense. We don't want to be throwing verbal daggers and lobbing grenades at folks, which sometimes is a lot of what I hear. And I recognize that's emotion, that's fear, that's concern. But just as Christians, talking to other Christians, trying to think through these things, we want that spirit of love and charity. So, 
a few conclusions from that. Every election is the choice between the lesser of two evils. I think every election is just that. So I've seen, how many of you have seen this Spurgeon quote? Of two evils, choose neither. I'm assuming a lot of you have seen that. Yeah, of two evils, choose neither. Um, And you know, when you quote Spurgeon in some circles, you might as well be quoting Jesus. Right? Spurgeon's not talking about politics, though. He's talking about binary things like lying and stealing. Um, If no party is God's party, if no candidate is God's candidate, if the kingdom of this world doesn't finally bring about the kingdom of God, if every human being has dignity because they're made in the image of God and yet they're fallen, then we're always choosing between the lesser of two evils. I think we always are. Which means we should be very, very slow to demonize another party or candidate to call them absolutely evil. To have our candidate do some things that we find morally repugnant, but because they're not part of the other party, we sort of dismiss them but go after. So you see that in both parties all the time. We just want to be careful. They bear the image of God. Both candidates, third-party candidates, we all bear the image of God. And while we are all totally depraved, we're not wholly depraved. So this may come as a surprise to some of you who don't like some of the candidates, but they're not actually as bad as they could be. The Bible's actually clear about that. Okay, second, and this will come as no surprise, politics is a complicated game. We've talked about it. There are direct lines sometimes between the Bible and policy. Um, But there is a far greater collection of policy matters, again, which require wisdom. And since there's no candidate that's a single-issue candidate, platforms involve many things. It's trying to bring all these things together, reflect on them, and decide what's wisest. So who knows which former president was the first to sign no-fault divorce into law? It was Reagan. Yeah, governor of California, 1970. Um, And that would be followed by just about every other state in the nation in the next 20 years. And arguably, that leading out in that way and no-fault divorce has caused more harm to families than any other decision any candidate has probably ever made. Reagan, late in life, according to his son, um, in a private conversation, apparently said much later in life, he thinks it was perhaps the greatest political mistake he ever made. I don't think he ever said that publicly that I'm aware of. Um, but for the longest time, he championed it. He himself was a divorcee. He supported it, etc. Um, you would never get to the Obergefell decision if you didn't have no-fault divorce first. Does that mean Reagan was of the devil? Burnham and effigy? Well, no. Right? Conservatives in the 80s recognized, yeah, he's a flawed man. All the candidates are flawed. I'm looking at the totality of what he represents, and I don't like this, but I like these other things, and so I go with it. And that's the decision we make. We've got to look at the whole picture. But I think even as we do that, it's good to know that culture matters. And so we need to be aware of culture, even as we look to some of those issues we feel most critically about. So, for example, since the mid-'70s, when you come to white evangelical voters, if there's been a single issue, it's been that issue of abortion. And I'm not going to say that's wrong at all. It is, it's a scandal. Um, it is whatever you want to say it is. It's, it's evil. It's awful. And yet at the same time, somehow, the majority of black evangelical voters who also think abortion is a scandal haven't made that their single issue vote. 
it's been driven, their vote has been driven by actually a much larger collection of justice issues coming out of the civil rights movement. So both abortion and racism both reduce other human beings to objects that are less than human and thus are not worthy of justice. Both abortion and racism do that. Now, abortion and racism don't normally involve the same levels of harm. I think we recognize that. They normally don't involve the same level of harm, the same seriousness. So racism doesn't result in death every time. But of course, it can, it has historically, and sometimes it still does. So relatedly, because white people generally haven't experienced racism, they haven't always thought through those other broader justice issues in the same way. They haven't been as sensitive to them. So just for example, when I was taught how to drive a car, my mom never looked at me and said, now you know how to drive, never drive at night. But that's what the church planter, African-American church planter, when I was up in D.C., that's how he had to be instructed by his parents. Because he was an old, this is, learned how to drive a while ago, and they understood it just wasn't safe as a black man to drive at night. I didn't live in that world. I didn't have my Beamer pulled over and have the cops go through it and tear up my back seat because I was young and black and was driving a Beamer. Another member of the church that I came from had that very experience. And of course, he was a successful portfolio manager. But it was a nice car, and he was black. And so they tore up his car. Or some of you know Trip Lee, the rapper. Trip, one of the kindest, nicest guys, grew up out in Texas, actually went to private schools. He's not like the thug kind of guy that some rappers might present themselves to be. And yet, preaches Christ at a concert, raps about Christ, steps out, walk into his car, and gets his cheekbone nearly smashed in by cops because he happens to look like someone they're searching. Those are just three examples of people that I've talked to in the last year and a half when I was up in D.C. Like, that's just not the world I live in. So as they talk about civil rights and justice issues, okay, that helps me understand why if you read blogs and you read Thibidiani Obule and you, like, instinctively, what is he arguing? I don't make sense. Why is he elevating this above that? Well, you start to hear more of these stories and think, okay, there's, maybe there's something to their story I'm not getting. And maybe my own cultural assumptions, the things I haven't experienced are playing a role in what I'm not appreciating as other Christians are appreciating it. Um, All that to say, it can be easier for us to privilege one issue over another, depending upon the background we come from, right? It goes both ways. A fifth thing I just want to say, it's a privilege to vote. Okay, it's not a sin not to vote. Some will tell you it's a sin not to vote. I don't think the Bible doesn't say you have to vote. But I think in a representative democracy, you're dumb not to vote. It's part of our job description. We get to vote. Millennia of people never could have dreamt of that. I know Greek city-states, okay. But for the most part, like, you don't, they didn't get to vote. We get to vote. And they'll say, oh, you know, don't cast your vote for someone that doesn't matter. No, every vote matters. Every vote makes a statement. I don't care if your candidate gets 2%. It's not 2% that went to someone else, and people reflect over that. They try to draw conclusions. It matters. I would encourage you to vote. And just vote for the person that you think is going to do the best overall job of securing justice, peace, prosperity, virtue for society as a whole, right, so that we can live those quiet, peaceful lives, hold out the gospel. It might be. It's always the choice between the lesser of two or three or four evils, but just make that choice you think is best. 
And I just encourage you to vote. If you haven't and you weren't going to, I'd still encourage you to do it. I think it's wise. Sixth, we can agree on the gospel. We can agree on moral issues. And yet it is still possible not to agree on which party has the best platform to get us there. So healthcare is a moral issue. But again, we can have legitimate disagreements as Christians about whether public or private payer systems are the best approach. National defense. You can want to secure and protect our borders. And yet you can look and you can make... Christians have come to different conclusions. And I know men in the military, where I used to be serving, I know they are quite torn. I know many in the military who can't... who Let me be careful. who, Who would prefer not to have Hillary as their president, but they're terrified of Trump. They don't know what to do. They're coming to different conclusions. Um, Take sanctity of life. So you can take that broad issue. Trump has said we've got to register Muslims, put up walls against Mexicans because they're all rapists, and he's quested to judge his competence because of his ethnicity, let alone what he said about women and done to women, etc. And you may say, you know what, given all that, and given the fact that he's never really articulated a very coherent sanctity of life position, even in the debates. I mean, he stated something positively in the third debate, but it's never really been a campaign issue at all for the guy. You may say, given all that, you know what? Um, I loathe abortion, but I think Roe v. Wade is the settled law of the land. I'm not sure there's a lot we can do about it right now. And so I'm going to support a candidate who actually condones abortion, though I and myself find it reprehensible because there's a set of other things that he or she stands for. And I think I'm actually going for the big bucket. I think a Christian can come to that conclusion and not be in sin, and we don't have to demonize them. We can disagree. You can have good, passionate conversations, and I think there can be legitimate disagreements there. In much the same way that conservatives championed Reagan despite the fact that he was positively for no-fault divorce. I think it's, it's a similar analogy. I think lastly, at the end of the day, we've just got to remember, most importantly, our hope is not in government. Our hope is in the gospel. So it was not by accident that we sang the church's one foundation is not a party. It's not our constitution. It's not who sits on the court. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Right? That wasn't by accident that we sang that song. Um, hope is not in government, but the gospel. So governments can be agents to restrain evil But governments can't change the human heart. That's not in Romans 13 what they do. They can punish wrong, but they can't finally deliver us from all wrong, like the gospel can do. At the end of the day, while we long for better governments, they're not finally the solutions we seek. That, my friends, that solution is always and only found in the gospel. And we've got to be just, we've got to be all the more eager to have that good news on our lips than merely what's happening in any election cycle. I'm going to take some questions in a moment, but now that your minds have gone to pot, I was told I had to talk about pot. No joke. I was told I needed to talk about pot. Maybe that's because I come from Santa Cruz, where that was a really normal thing. I don't know. Um, But it's on the ballot, and so I was told to make a few comments about pot, and I'll do that. Um, Coming from California and D.C., two states that both have legalized medicinal use of marijuana. And D.C. is legalized recreational use. California, it's actually on the ballot, I think, on Tuesday for recreational use. So some experience there. Just to be clear, I understand recreational smoking of pot is sin. That's how I read it. That's how I understand it. It's a drug with mind-altering effects 
that reduces and diminishes our capacities, that seems to have harmful effects long-term in terms of IQ. I know it's disputed a bit amongst adults. It's not disputed so much at all amongst children up to age 25 as the brains are developing. Um, There's a reason, as of even this past August, that Obama, given all the things he's been willing to do culturally with the Cultural Revolution, his DEA still classifies marijuana as a type 1 drug. That's not by accident. Okay, I know caffeine's a drug. But you know what? Most people don't smoke pot to be a more alert dad. Or more competent employee. I think for most users, it's a recreational escape. And it produces that diminished accuracy of observation, memory, reasoning. So in a lot of ways, the the pursuit of recreational pot, it's a lot like drunkenness in my mind. It's a lot like drunkenness. The vast majority of people, they smoke with the intent to become high. So let's be honest. People don't add marijuana to brownies to improve the taste. And if you're thinking of Drew Barrymore, you know exactly what I mean. If you don't know that movie reference, just get it out of your mind. Right? Well, you, you put it in there because you're seeking a high. And I guess it's about four puffs, about seven milligrams of THC, the sort of drug in, in, in weed. That's what it takes to sort of get the high of a couple of beers, if I remember the numbers right. So the point is, we're not lighting up to treasure who Jesus is. It's hard to authentically I think, commend Christ when you're high. We're called the Bible alert, sober-minded, self-controlled. The body is meant for the Lord, the Lord for the body. I think recreational pot inhibits all of those things. It destroys those things. It doesn't promote any of those things. Worse, it's so often a gateway drug to other drugs. And a lot of drug users that began with pot, that got hooked on something else, would look at you and say, don't start. Members in this congregation would say, don't even think about starting. Secondly, Medicinal measures are never about medicine. They're about recreation. That is very obvious when you look historically at the ballots and the measures. So I was even on the square the other day, and some guy walked up to me, and he said, hey, I'd love for you to sign this ballot measure on medicinal marijuana. And I just looked at him, and I said, I'm, I'm actually not interested. And he said, what do you mean you're not interested? You have tattoos. It was the funniest comment. It's like, because I have tattoos, I must smoke pot. (laughs) And so I just said, I said, actually, I think it does great harm to societies. I don't think it's actually about medicine at all. If it is, you could just run through the FDA normal approval for drugs. That's not what you're about. He He didn't know what to say. But I think it was clear in his own mind. I mean, I don't think that guy was there because marijuana cured him from cancer or seizures. The guy who's got Jesus smoked weed, if you've seen that guy up on the square, I don't think that's medicinal that he's promoting and advocating. So medicinal marijuana, it's always the Trojan horse to recreational marijuana. It has been in every state, Alaska, Oregon, Colorado. It always starts as medicinal and it goes to recreational. I don't think there's a single state that has gone the other way, right? And of course, in Arkansas, we get first you get medicinal, then recreational. Um, But don't buy the hype. It's largely a laughable fiction. I mean, according to CNN, right, what some of you would call the commie news network, right, CNN, not really a friend of, of <laughs> conservative things. You get me at night, sometimes my mouth goes. That's not my notes. Um, they said in California, the typical user of medicinal marijuana is a 32-year-old white man with no life-threatening illnesses but a long record of substance abuse. 
That's what they say. In Colorado, their um, medical marijuana, only 2% have prescribed marijuana from can- for cancer, 1% from HIV AIDS, 94% cite unspecified pain for their pot prescription. Santa Monica, where my wife and I used to live, you just go down to the beach and you can get someone to write you a prescription for a headache. Right? The LA Times, right? they're just noting that. So just recognize that third in the case where THC, the drug in marijuana, in case where that actually may help seizures, and there seems to be some evidence that actually is the case, um, the right course is not to legalize marijuana where there are no controls or any FDA oversight, as largely it's happened. It's to put it through those normal FDA channels. So one of the best drugs we have from malaria is still from the bark of some tree in Peru. But if you got malaria, we don't give you the bark and say smoke it. Right? You, like, you extract the medicine and you properly refine it. You make sure there's no other pollutants. And then you put it in a drug form so that it can be of help to people. I'm just going to say, in the case where medical marijuana may be of use, we should just encourage that kind of policy, not the policy that's been happening across the country. Because at the end of the day, I think it impairs abilities and it destroys communities. That's what it does. The problem is it brings in a ton of money to the tune of billions, which is why California wants to be back in front because those lottery, that lottery money that they're not getting as much of anymore that was supposed to be such a big boon for schools, which really never made it to the school's coffers anyway, well, guess what? They can now get that through pot and through legalizing it and taxing it. Buffett said about cigarettes, it costs you a cent, you sell it for five bucks, you tax it for like another five, it's the best business deal ever. He was mocking it, but he, that's what, it pots the same way. So it destroys communities and impairs abilities. And just our focus as Christians, it's got to be on helping people, not giving them easier access to false hopes in terms of drug use, which doesn't ever solve problems, but just compounds them. So I may have spoken a little more clearly on pot than in the presidential race, but I feel a little bit more safe on biblical grounds. Okay.